Hello, and welcome to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soulsmith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. So we don't have a brand new episode for you today because I'm on spring break this week. But as many of you know, I used to co-host another podcast with my best friend, Amy Palangian, the creator of Yummy Toddler Food. Our podcast was called Comfort Food, and it was the podcast where we talked about the joys and meltdowns of feeding our families and feeding ourselves. I sort of love still saying that tagline, which I said for so long. So we had to retire Comfort Food in 2020 for a whole lot of reasons. Namely, it was not monetized, and when we were pandemic parenting and working from home, we both had to pick things to cut, and that was the thing that we had to let go of. But Amy has given me her blessing to occasionally pull out some of our best episodes and share them with all of you, which I'm really excited to do because there were a lot of great conversations we had between ourselves and also with various guests who you'll get to hear from from time to time. And it's been really fun to dig back into those archives and figure out which conversations still feel relevant to have today with the Burnt Toast audience. And I should note, a lot of these are going to be more parenting-focused than we always are because it was a parenting podcast. But I'm hoping non-parents get something out of it too. You know, a lot of the issues are pretty universally relatable. So the episode I am sharing today first aired on March 5th, 2020. Wow, like right before the world shut down. (laughs) It's really a pre-COVID, pre-lots-of-things time capsule kind of episode. I think you'll still find a lot of it pretty relevant, but definitely do listen to this a little bit like, you know, you're a historian looking back at our earlier work, you know, documenting for the record. You can kind of see where a lot of my thinking on these issues started. I don't think I was all the way there yet. I was certainly further along than I was if I played you something from, you know, 10 years ago, but we're all work in progress, is what I'm saying. And I think in particular, Amy and I were really just beginning to understand how we wanted to talk about kid diet culture on Instagram. I don't think we had either of us really even named it that diet culture around kids is happening on Instagram. I don't think we named it that clearly. And you'll definitely hear moments where we're both clearly still chafing against some diet mentality stuff of our own. I think we do a pretty good job of naming those things as they come up. But I just want to be clear that I wouldn't necessarily repeat all of this today, and neither would she. If that makes you nervous, if you're worried about potential for harm, certainly feel free to give this one a miss. We do talk about different forms of restrictive eating, so that would be your content warming. But if that's something you're sort of interested in hearing and puzzling out with us, and then you bump on something as you're listening, feel free to put it in the comments over in the newsletter so we can discuss, because I welcome that accountability. I welcome a chance to sort of revisit give you a take on where I would land now. I think it could be really interesting. So this is an episode where we break down why avoiding a restrictive mindset around food is so important. And we get into how to spot underlying restriction in food rules, portion size concepts, and all these assumptions and anxieties we carry around certain food groups. Oh, and we rant a little bit about baby led weaning and how much of a cult it can be. I say as someone who did some baby led weaning, so don't get mad at me if that's your jam, but you know, all of these ideologies have their drawbacks. So yeah, it's really all there. So here is pre-COVID me and Amy on comfort food, but first a quick break. Hey, if you like this episode and value the work that goes into the Burnt Toast podcast, I would love for you to support the show by becoming a Burnt Toast subscriber. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year, and you get a whole bunch of great perks 
including subscriber-only bonus episodes where I answer your questions about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. You also get all of my reported essays and full access to my monthly Ask Virginia column delivered directly to your email. And you become a part of the Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday thread discussions. Just click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to subscribe. And if you want to support the show but don't have $5, remember you are also helping tons when you subscribe for free in your podcast player and leave us a rating or a review. Or just tell a friend about the show. Or just keep listening. That works too. Whatever you do, thanks so much for supporting independent anti-diet journalism. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of Comfort Food. This is the podcast about the joys and meltdowns of feeding our families and feeding ourselves. This week we're exploring how food restriction can creep into our everyday without us even really being aware of it and the impacts that this can have on our own relationship with food and the way that we're feeding our kids. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith. I'm a writer, a contributor to Parents Magazine and New York Times Parenting, and the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. I write about how women relate to food in our bodies in a culture that gives us so many unrealistic expectations about these things. And I'm Amy Palangian, a writer, recipe developer, and creator of Yummy Toddler Food, and I love helping parents to stop freaking out about what their kids will and won't eat and sharing doable recipes that fit into our busy schedules. Okay, so um, so this topic has been on my mind lately because I keep sort of having these experiences where I'm realizing that food restriction is a thing and I'm like surprising to me um, because often when we talk about food restriction, we think of it as like a calorie counting diet or strict portion control, but there are a lot of other ways that it can creep in and cause harm or confusion or just make us like not super clear on our goals with both how we eat and how we're feeding our kids. Totally. And I think like I have also had those moments of kind of recognizing in yourself like, oh, wait, I'm I'm caring about this. Like this is a restriction thing creeping. Like it can just pop up because it's so conditioned into us. I mean, really from, you know, this might sound a little radical, but if you think back to like elementary school when we were given the food pyramid, like in and of itself, like, well, the food pyramid may not be the most harmful diet out there. It still was like teaching us this hierarchy of foods and good and bad and less of this and more of that. And, you know, I think even it's really difficult with kids who think so concretely in black and white about food to give these things and sort of tell us, tell kids how to eat in that way. And then we all grow up and then get into diet culture and more messages and more messages about restriction. So I think restriction is like at the core of how a lot of people interact with food in ways they even, they just don't even realize. And I think it's it's extra hard because I think like as you're talking about that, I mean, my gut reaction is like, but I want my kids to eat more nutritious foods than other foods. And like, mm-hmm. how do you do that without limiting <laughs> the other foods? Because totally. um, like some foods taste better than others. And, you know, that's sort of the primary driver that kids have when they're eating is, you know, it's they want it to taste good. That's They don't have the capacity to like understand about nutrients um, in different foods. So it's tricky. Right. And nor should they. I mean, that's not sort of an age appropriate expectation that a six-year-old is going to be like, you know what I'm worried about today? Cholesterol. What's happening with my arteries in 40 years? Like, it's not where we want their minds to go. I mean, I think 
First, let's back up and talk about why restriction does backfire because some people listening may be thinking exactly like you, like, give me back my food pyramid or my my plate or whatever. Like, this is totally fine. What we need to understand is that research shows over and over that the more limited you feel around a food, the more you feel like you don't have permission to eat it, the more fixated on it you will be and the more you will crave it. And so just saying to kids, like, I want you to eat more fruits and vegetables than these other foods makes the fruits and vegetables less interesting and the other foods much, much, much more interesting. And we can put in the show notes um, the sort of famous study done by this really iconic food researcher, Leanne Birch, where they've told like half the kids in the study that they could have as much soup as they wanted and then have dessert. And then they told the other kids, no, you have to finish your soup before you're allowed to have dessert. And the kids who had to finish their soup both ate less of it and liked it less than the kids who were allowed to kind of self-regulate between all the foods on offer. So it's a really powerful piece of research, and it's been replicated many, many times. There's lots of other studies, and you know, I can try to come up with a couple other citations to pop in the show notes for people who want to dive into this. But it, you know, it just really showed that that kind of primary human psychology of feeling limited makes you crave it more. Um, is why this cannot be the way we approach nutrition with our kids. Yeah, I mean, what do you say to someone who like doesn't have a lot of understanding of nutrition, but they still want to raise their kids like eating a quote unquote healthy diet? Like, how do you do it without having any of those boundaries? Well, I think this is where, you know, we come back to it all the time, but this is where I think division of responsibility is so helpful because division of responsibility isn't about good foods versus bad foods. It isn't really about what type of food you're eating, but instead it's a way of feeding your family that lets kids play to their strengths, which is kids when left alone really do know when they're hungry and when they're full. And they will apply that knowledge to any type of food, even the quote unquote treat food or, you know, higher flavor food, things that they're really drawn to. Um, And again, we know that in the research as well. So this is where, you know, you don't really have to have a, a, like, none of us need nutrition degrees to feed our families. <laughs> you don't actually need to know all this nitty gritty about macros and micronutrients and potassium and I don't even know what else. Sodium. Um, thank Sodium's you, sodium. Thing, yeah. <laughs> um, all of these things. All you need to know is that you're in charge of offering a range of foods, and that can mean lots of different things based on your budget, preferences, you know, cultural values around food, whatever, you offer a range of foods, you're in charge of what's served at the meal, and kids are in charge of how much they eat. And, you know, that sounds like overly simplistic. And of course, we've done plenty of episodes where we get into the nitty gritty of all of that. But fundamentally, that's letting you bypass this whole issue of, is it nutritious enough? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, and like, I'm on the same side as you. (laughs) And I'm still like, but wait. (laughs) Because I know, I mean, and even so like, on some level, it might be even easier if like you don't have nutrition information because you don't have all of that extra stuff to oh, worry about. That is completely true because yeah. also let's be real. When we say nutrition information, we don't like mean this sort of unbiased, right. like, exactly right, unequivocally true statements about food. We mean a whole mishmash of what we've learned in the media, what we've read in diet books, like what we've picked up from like something a doctor said, something our mom said, something my neighbor said, you know, my yoga teacher said such and such. Like all of this information in our brains about food 
is not all necessarily useful, and yet it is really difficult to silence. Mm-hmm. Totally so, true. Yeah, I think that's important to think about, um, you know, when you're getting fixated on the nutrition piece, like what, is it really nutrition or where are you getting those messages? And, you know, how did that, why, why does this feel so important? When you are fixated on something, I think asking yourself, like, what is my goal here? Like when you're worried about whether your kid's eating enough protein, like what's the underlying goal and what's your underlying worry? Like, right, right. Because be if you drill down into that, you may realize, oh, wait, no, this is a restriction thing. Mm-hmm. This is actually me worrying about their body size or me worrying about whether I'm feeding them in a, quote, perfect way because I feel a lot of judgment about how I feed my kids. Like there's something else feeding into it that's not just like basic nutrition. Um, right. That it's, it's often other anxieties we have that we're kind of filtering through this lens of wanting to control how our kids eat. So, right. yeah, I think that's useful to to explore, to try to, it's a way of spotting your own hidden restriction traps, which, you know, to be clear, I have too. Like we all have them. <laughs> Don't feel bad if you're, you know. Yeah, it's not like they're ever going to go away. It's just a process of like yeah. recognizing them. Yeah, recognizing them and then realizing you can let go a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it's, yeah, yeah. Um, we had it just the other day. One of my daughters was eating um, some cookies with her afternoon snack, and they we had bought the ones that come in like the prepackaged, you know, like little baggies of six cookies or whatever. And she finished them and wanted more. And my husband was like, "But you, but that was the portion." <laughs> and yeah. I was like, "Yeah, but that was just the portion the manufacturer decided, right. <laughs> you know, like that's not like some." unequivocally correct amount of cookies for her to eat. Like if she wants two more cookies, it's fine. You know, like this is, um, yeah. So I, again, these restriction traps come up all over the place and social media does not help because they are everywhere. Yeah. Online. Okay. So we're going to share some other examples um, of where we've seen this and realized that there might be something else going on with restriction. I'm um, just as like a fun exercise. <laughs> um, <laughs> Or maybe you guys won't think this is fun. I don't know. I think this is fun. I think it's fun. Yeah. I think it's, it's fun to play spot the restriction. <laughs> spot the restriction in the kid food marketing. Yeah. Um, yes. That's basically what we're doing here today. So the first one is a message we have seen on the Instagram um, from some accounts where there's a, there's a message that processed foods will make kids feel grumpy. And yeah, so this is like really this underlying belief that, you know, even if you sort of are claiming to be someone who keeps food neutral, if you lean into, but processed foods make you grumpy or sugar makes you crazy or one of these other sort of not entirely scientific or proven statements about a food, like, well, so what even processed foods? Like, that's an enormous category. They all make kids grumpy. Like, does that include a cheese stick? Yeah, I mean, that's bread. Like, everything makes kids grumpy. So, you know, those kinds of statements are definitely rooted in restriction because it's definitely about playing into good foods and bad foods. Yeah. Um, And it's so, that's such a common belief too. And it's hard, even when you know that it's not necessarily true to like fully believe it because those messages are just everywhere. Yeah. And you, and this is what I see parents like apologizing for a lot, you know, like, oh, I can't believe I'm letting them eat this or, you know, I'm being such a bad mom today. And this is where like, we have to push back because it's not fair for moms to, or dads to feel shamed about 
feeding kids perfectly nutritious and valid food choices, um, you know, because of this sort of mysterious hype that that doesn't really make sense. I'm actually starting to dig in right now for my next New York Times column into the sugar highs thing. So maybe mm-hmm. we'll do another episode on that once I get further into that research because mm-hmm. none of this is cut and dried. It's definitely not. <laughs> um, and it's yeah. been interesting to look at that data and realize just how how much myth goes into those kinds of messages. Right. And even when you, so I'm thinking about um, last week I did an Instagram story on sodium because I was getting so many questions on it. And mm. then like that same day I sh- I shared um, like a snack plate of my three-year-old's lunch and I looked at it and I was like, okay, so she basically like hit her sodium, um, like the like quote unquote, like a maximum level, like in that lunch because <laughs> there was cheese and there was crackers and there was veggie straws. I was like, but that's actually the lunch that she ate and she right. was happy and that's the lunch that I chose to give her. And that doesn't and a perfectly healthy lunch. Right. And it doesn't mean that it's wrong just because one of the like nutrient the I don't even know how to, is sodium a nutrient? What would you call it? One of the yeah. ingredients I mean, in it. Human, would, yeah. Human just, bodies require sodium to exist. So right. yeah, I think it's like, a nutrient. When you take that out of the context of the rest of what someone might be eating it's possible for any meal to look like it's not balanced or healthy in quotes or, you know, like the right choice. Well, you tell parents all the time to take the big picture view on their kids' intake and look over the course of the day or a couple of days or a week to get a sense of how things are balancing out. Because, yeah, I mean, unless you are some kind of like intense bodybuilder or Hollywood celebrity who has to control your nutritional intake to the gram in that way, I don't see why anyone needs to obsess over this to that degree. It's not a happy or healthy way to live. And let's be real, most of the people who are living that way would meet criteria for an eating disorder or are at the very least like super stressing out and limiting their lives by Mm -hmm. having to focus so much on these details. And I think like a lot of us can recognize that and don't want to go down that crazy path, but they, but it's just hard in the moment when you suddenly, it can kind of catch up with you. Like if your kids have a few snacky based meals for a few days in a row and you suddenly think, wait, like, did we lose the plot on this? Like, do I remember the last time they ate a vegetable? And then I, then you can spiral. Yeah. Okay. Um, second example is one that has been really bugging me lately. <laughs> mm. So, and this has come up like maybe four times for me in the past month that there's only one right way to feed a baby and that you hundred percent cannot do baby led weaning and purees at the same time. Um, I've actually two different people say that to me that you can't do them both at the same time because you will confuse the baby. You are risking the baby, um, you're basically like putting the baby at risk for choking because they cannot possibly understand how to how to manipulate those two different foods. I'm at so the confused. Same, same time, I know, and I'm like, that's not that's not true. Why do these people think babies are so dumb? Number one, <laughs> it feels very anti-baby. Right. Um, I think a lot of babies look. There's lots of reasons that. It can make more sense, you know, I have one child where baby led weaning was the only option that was going to work for her, and I have one child who was so ravenous that she needed purees because she couldn't, she lacked the motor skills to feed herself (laughs) well enough, and you know, and in both cases, we also basically did both at all times because as humans, we do both, right? Mm -hmm. Like as an adult, I eat both solid and pureed food because sometimes I have soup and sometimes I don't, so... I don't understand why you need to make this distinction. Well, and I think like 
And I don't want to judge anyone who feels this way because it's possible that somebody you trust told you this and so you believe them. And that's a Or you may have a kid who's really not doing well with periods, but doing great with self-feeding. Again, I had that child. I get it. Like there's definitely going to be kids on the extremes that need one approach or the other. Um, But But what I think is that's the only right way to do it. But I think what's at the root of this is a lot of the um, supporters of baby-led weaning feel that it is the right way to start solids. Mm -hmm. And then if you do that, you are going to set your kid up to be a healthy eater. You're not going to have a picky eater and you're going to like have sort of a perfect child, which like no matter how you feed a baby, they're going to get to be one and a half or two and they're going to hit that developmental stage where they're fearful of new foods. And I don't care like what they ate when they were nine months old, like it's not going right. to be the same. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that, you know, again, like that is a perfectly valid thing to believe because that is like that, that would be a much more optimistic way to go into it than just assuming that yeah. your kid's like going to turn 18 months and not eat anything. <laughs> but <laughs> at the same time, I think we need to be careful on how, like the language that we're using and, um, just well, and the pressure we're putting on ourselves. Yeah, like yeah. it's not a realistic expectation to think that your child will just literally never ever be a picky eater because being picky is part of having preferences and will and like we want our like developmentally you want the toddler as frustrating as it is for all of us. Like it's normal for toddlers to go through this because it's how they're becoming independent people and we want that for our children. So right. Number one, like let's stop making picky being the enemy of everything because it is part of normal child development. But also I think you're totally right. I think this ties into this like I I need to raise a perfect eater and I need to feed in this way that's going to set them up for this like idyllic, perfect nutrition at every meal type of approach. And yeah, it's it's so much pressure on yourself. It's so much pressure on your kid. It's not realistic. It's not sustainable. And, you know, there's just so many other ways to measure yourself as a parent. Like you are not how your child eats. That's not the judgment that you need to make about yourself. Yeah. And I think I was thinking that this falled into the category of restriction because you're like putting up these sort of artificial boundaries on what's yeah. right and what's not right. Totally agree. Yeah. You're saying like, if you're literally saying I'm not going to like spoon feed my child yogurt, that is a restriction you are making that may at times be quite inconvenient. Like you may be somewhere where it's different, you know, or, you know, the other way, like it's, you know, there's going to be a child who goes to daycare and like that's the way they feed them. Like, yeah, you know, you may not always have the choice. Yeah. You need to, I think, yeah, you're setting up a certain inflexibility and I think it's no accident that this is being somewhat, um, I'm painting with a broad brush, but I do see a certain trajectory between the parents who are very hardcore about baby led weaning, who then pack the rainbow bento lunch boxes, who then also, you know, don't let sugar in the house, try to control, like, this is like, this can be sort of putting you down a whole path of being very controlling about how your kid eats in a way that is not going to work out. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to say this again, like we empathize if that's where you are because it's so easy to find yourself there. It's Yeah. Yeah. I mean Oh, feel free to read chapter one of my book, you guys. Yeah. It's free on my <laughs> website. I was there with you yeah. <laughs> in a pretty intense way. Um, yeah. 
So, okay, so the next one that we have noticed, this is definitely a pretty clear-cut restriction, is when you see pictures on social media of kid meals and they've added a portion of dessert or fun food and it's like three M&Ms in the lunchbox or on the dinner plate. And I think people really believe in their hearts that that is an appropriate portion size for a kid. And, you know, I was thinking back, like, I remember struggling with this because I would see this all the time and I would think like, oh yeah, they only need three M&Ms. And my kids would just inhale three M&Ms <laughs> and look at me like, what are you doing? Like, where's the rest of the- Why are you not giving me more M&Ms? Like it's, nobody is satisfied by three M&Ms. Um, and it really, the under, what's underlying this is that you are anxious about giving them a treat food and you're trying to control how much of it they eat. And as we just went over with division of responsibility, that's really, that's really like you need to stay in your lane. You're blurring your responsibilities there. Um, you need to give them a little more freedom to decide. Maybe it's six M&Ms or 12 or you don't count the M&Ms. That's also an option. Yeah, I think the thing that can be hard about this is um, like in – Ellen Satter says to give dessert with dinner and give like one portion. And so then you're like, well, what's a portion? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And is this portion the same for me as it is for my child? Is it the same for an 18-month-old as it is for a five-year-old? And that's like a lot of choices that you need to make. And This is actually, sorry, I I just want to say like I sort of disagree with this piece of Ellen Satter. I think it is too... I think it is too confusing for parents because you do then get really hung up in this what's the portion size. I I think it's better to to maybe put out something that you can all share on the table and let the kids still help themselves Mm -hmm. um, to how much it is. Like, you know, and maybe you don't put out a thousand brownies, but you put out a plate so that everyone's going to have like one or two. I think that's reasonable. But yeah, getting hung up on the different portion sizes for your 18-month-old versus your six-year-old is, that sounds crazy making. Yeah. I mean, we often have dessert with dinner and I sort of often force myself to make the portion larger than I sort of think it should be as a way to like get myself out of the habit of trying to control how much of the dessert that they get. Mm, And you're fighting back against your restriction. I like it. Yeah. And it's, it's a very interesting, like last weekend I made Rice Krispie treats and I had them um, in a like a nine by 11 baking pan. And I like, I remember very clearly like standing there and, and sort of debating on how big to cut them. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to cut them as big of a size as I would want my Rice Krispie treat to be. Mm-hmm. And that probably wound up being less bars than like specified in the recipe. Um, and you know what? Everyone wound up having two and it was, it was fine. But I think like some of those experiences when you're the parent and you are making those choices, just be aware of what comes up and it can be a very, very interesting and sort of eye opening experience to just consider. And the same thing with ice cream. Yeah. Um, yeah. Scooping. Yeah, I admit we do tend to serve ice cream in smaller bowls, mostly because ice cream is expensive and I (laughs) want the pint to last a little longer, (laughs) Um, you know, and that I think is a piece of it too. Um, But yeah, there's probably also some restrictive mindset of thinking like, well, surely they don't need like a full cereal bowl size. I should just use like little ramekins or something. And that's definitely, that's definitely a a diety mindset around ice cream that I should probably challenge. Um, And I think, yeah, I just think in general, if you're feeling like you are starting to 
Like, I think that the sadder advice of serve one portion of dessert with dinner is great if you are consistently serving dessert every single night with dinner and there's always a treat food on the table and your kids can trust and rely on that. Then there's no reason to sort of like, like you could have it just be one thing because they know they're going to get more tomorrow. They know mm-hmm. it, it, you're not going to trigger the scarcity mindset. Whereas if you serve dessert a little more infrequently, I would probably peel back on needing to control the portion, view this more as a learning opportunity for everybody to learn like how much do they want to eat of cookies or ice cream or whatever. And which she also does say you should do from time to time. And I think because we don't tend to do it every single night, I much more take that approach with it of letting them regulate their own portion. And I definitely see them, you know, leaving stuff in the bowl or some nights they want a lot, some nights they don't really care about it. Like, Mm -hmm. because they're, again, we've avoided the restriction mindset there. So I think if if you find yourself counting out M&Ms or really struggling about this, like err on this, do exactly what Amy's doing, like err on the side of giving more and just be curious about what happens. Yeah. And I think my, like my overall goal is to, and this is sort of what you said in the beginning, but it's to expose and offer my kids a range of foods throughout the week. And that includes like all sorts of vegetables and produce, all sorts of food groups, and but also to have these moments of food that is purely for pleasure mm-hmm. um, and like aim for a mix of all of those experiences so that sort of at the end of the week, they've had like a lot of different food types and yeah. not to get caught up in the counting. And like, and that's a little bit why it's hard for me when people ask me about appropriate portion sizes, you know, my answer is like, always trust your child's hunger. Mm-hmm. And that is not a satisfying answer for a lot of people. Yeah, I know because because they are still working through their own restrictive. Well, and because that's like the cultural norm where yeah. it's really unusual for someone to say, um, yeah. uh, someone was telling me the other day that they went to their pediatrician and their pediatrician actually like recited the division of responsibility <gasps> to them. And I was like, in Des Moines, Amazing. somebody knows what that is. Like, I was so shocked. Um, you want that pediatrician? No, I was you? like, I'm going to drive an hour now to go find that person. <laughs> Absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. But that's, I mean, that's the first time I've ever heard a medical provider even know what that was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So just it's, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. You're definitely fighting some bigger cultural stuff. Um, but we can also put a link in the show notes to my column from December, all about division of responsibility, um, because I did there get into a little more of the research supporting it. I think that's a good thing to have handy if you are getting some pushback from doctors or other family members. You know, I often hear from, interestingly, mostly women saying, how do I explain this to my husband? (laughs) And this article is a useful link to share. So um, it can help explain why you are relaxing about the portion size. And, you know, fundamentally for me, it's like, if we are having a fun food experience, what is the first thing that kills the fun food experience? It's worrying about portion control. So guess what? I'm going to not do (laughs) because I'm there to enjoy eating cookies with my kids. So that's, yeah. Did you want to share a tip about um, something that we can like when we're looking at health information or um, food or things we see online, like how to spot this sort of thing or how to evaluate whether it's information that we want to sort of take in, in a way. Mm, yeah. So we definitely talked some about this in episode 53 with Jenny Berry, where we talked about kind of balancing your nutrition knowledge with being in more of an intuitive eating division of responsibility place with your family. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, 
you know, so if we're talking about social media posts, um, I would say if, I mean, Amy's photography is lovely. So lovely photography is not an automatic reason to write it off. But if it is a photo that is like hyper styled, hyper, you know, controlled, like everything in the box or the, you know, on the plate is sort of perfectly portioned out in this like really like beautiful jigsaw puzzle way. I think it's a sign that they made that meal to shoot a photo and not to feed to an actual child. So there's probably some other stuff going on in the advice that's not about, you know, what you actually need to think about with your kit. So I think that would be a first thing to look for. Um, And then I think, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, a great thing about social media is it has given more attention to things like division of responsibility. So there are a lot of people talking about it now, which is awesome. But of course, like not every, and same with intuitive eating, there are also plenty of people using those concepts to promote a more diet mindset. And so if you see somebody talking about like claiming to be intuitive eating or division of responsibility, but also talking about controlling a portion of food for a child, that's a big red flag because that goes against both of those concepts. So I think that's probably the two biggest things I would look out for. And then I don't know what else, what am I not thinking of? Um, I think any like overly obsessing about different types of micronutrients or macronutrients, like anything that just feels like it's really, you know, as Leslie Schilling would call it health propaganda versus (laughs) basic advice about how to feed your kids. Right. Yep. I agree. If you guys want to go back to an episode that we did that talked a little bit more about why kids don't need to diet, which is related to this, you can go to episode 44, which was with Anna Lutz. Um, It was really an awesome resource too. So check those out if you have any questions or like if you ever come across something on social media that you're confused about or you're wondering how we feel about it, send it to us and we'd love to take a look. Maybe we'll even like talk about it on the podcast. We'll see. We don't want to put people on blast, but I love that idea. Yeah. Um, Okay. So coming up, we have Unrelated with a really good listener question. So stay tuned. Okay. So we got this really awesome question from a listener um, and I like gave some thoughts in email and um, I'm just going to like generally run through the issue that was going on because I think that this is fairly common. Um, So they have twins who are a little over two years. They do division responsibility. They've tried family style. They've done deconstructed meals. They try to always have one food on the table that the kids like. They've put at least two hours between snack and dinner and they sit down together. This is basically like They've done all the things. They're A Just, plus, gold yeah, star, set gold up, star students. Yeah, <laughs> set up as great family meals. Um, but the kids <laughs> don't want the food. They will sometimes just eat like the plain rice or the bread. Um, then, like she and her husband are sort of underwhelmed by the meals because there's a lot of leftovers and there's a lot of food waste. And so she's like gone back and forth between trying to make a meal the kids will like, trying to make a meal that she'll like. And like at the end of the day, the kids still aren't eating a lot. And I think at the root of this, she and often I and many parents feel like they're failing and that they're not Mm -hmm. doing family dinner the right way. And that for some reason, they just can't figure out what on earth to feed their kids, Um, which is where I would say it is 100% possible that your kids are just not hungry for dinner. And that is a really, really normal thing. 
And which can make you also feel like you're failing because nobody wants to send their kid to bed on, bet, send their kid up to bed on an empty stomach, but it's normal. It's so normal. And it comes in phases. And, you know, Beatrix is right around the same age as these twins. And oh, dear listener, I am there with you. She is so over dinner right now. Basically, I feel like I could set a watch for maybe five minutes and both of my children would be gone from the table before the timer went off. (laughs) Um, That is what's happening with dinner right now. We sit down, they eat like three bites, and then they're both like ping pongs, just gone because they're over it. They want to go play. They're just not in a super hungry for dinner phase. And I know a lot of it is in our schedule, they are having snacks closer to dinner. And I think they're both ravenous at 3.30, 4 o'clock. And so by 5.30, they're actually not that hungry anymore. And, you know, I can't figure out a way that would involve us all eating dinner other than keeping them up far too late or um, me eating dinner, at, you know, for afternoon snack. Um, so it is what it is right now. And it's fine. It's not stressing me out, <laughs> to be honest. It's yeah, just- I think the thing to keep in mind is that um, if they are, you know, and some of the questions, like if I ever get this question from someone, I say, how are the how are the rest of their meals? Are they right. eating yeah. well at the rest of their meals? Are they meeting their milestones and gaining weight? Do they generally seem happy? Do you feel in your mama gut that something is wrong? Or yeah. does it seem like they're not hungry? Because it's... And and I think a lot of kids start the day with like a big appetite and they eat a big breakfast and they eat snacks all day and then they get to dinner and they're tired and they want attention. And like mm-hmm. the last thing they want to do is to work at eating something that they may not be super familiar with or they may just like legitimately not be physically hungry. Yeah. Um, but that's not a common message that we're given and so yeah, definitely not. Yeah. And keep in mind, you know, like I actually, just as you were running down that list, I was like, yep, we're fine on milestone, yep, we're fine and all that. Oh yeah. She's not eating a ton in general. She's also getting over a cold. Like it's, yeah. we've been, you know, sort yeah, of what else is going cycle. on? I think her two-year molars were coming in for right. a little bit there. Like there's a lot of things that can just throw off eating in general for a mm-hmm. short period of time that you don't need to panic about because, I mean, you just had this with Selway being sick and like giving up on solids and then, you know, bouncing right back once you felt better. And so if that's going on, don't stress. You know, I think the times to stress are when you feel like you have a kid that every meal, it's like you've only got a handful of foods that they'll consider. Um, and you see them, you know, you're worried about their growth. You're worried about milestones. If these things are not, if you know, it is important to sort of take that big picture mm-hmm. view. Yeah. And I um, like to remind people and also myself that Tula basically didn't eat dinner for the entirety of her two-year-old year. That's right. She like, didn't. She didn't. She just wasn't interested in it. And now she's like maybe 50-50. Like, yeah. She will very happily like stand in her learning tower to help me like chop vegetables and she'll like eat a pepper and then like that will be her dinner. Like yep. even if there's pasta, like she's just not she's just not super hungry at that time of the day. Um so like public service announcement, you're not doing anything wrong. This is a normal yeah. phase of childhood. It may come and go, like they may go through months where they're like inhaling dinner and then it may back up again and like not be much. And I think like Keep keep it in perspective and trust, like trust that. Like, ma- don't make it your job to get them to eat a certain amount of food. Make it your job to give them the opportunity, and then trust whether or not they eat. Like, it's you know, 
And let's also quickly touch on, because she talked about how she hates how much food they're wasting and how she's, like, really resenting meal planning and grocery shopping. And I just want to say, like, this may even be a time where you decide you are going to do, like, a simple kid dinner early and then eat what you and your husband really want after they're in bed. Like, that's completely valid if it'll help reduce your food waste and your stress. Maybe try that out for a few weeks and see how that feels. Yeah, eat breakfast Um, together or something. Yeah, yeah. Make a different meal of the day, your family meal, and worry less about the dinner piece. And, you know, I would also say, like, like, you know, do like, I think this is definitely a feed yourself first moment, like pick mm-hmm. the meals you want keep offering the one or two safe foods, you know, that they'll eat. So if they are hungry, there's bread or whatever on the table they can go for. But yeah, don't kill yourself making meals that are sort of overly catering to them and them feeling sad about what you're having to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So nothing else. I got nothing else. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, I'm watching the clock because I have to like go out into the snow. You've got to go. I've got to go. My childcare has been sick all week, so I've got to go cram the rest of my work day. So yeah, we'll wrap up now. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast and that flashback episode to Comfort Food March 2020. I hope you enjoy it. I would love to hear your thoughts. You can post a comment on the transcript of this episode over on Burnt Toast at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode and consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Just click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism. <laughs>